Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. So, no small topic, handling the scriptures. I'm going to solve it in three teaching sermons, <laughs> totally in about 100 minutes. No, actually, in all honesty, the first thing I'm going to do is pray, because this is a completely overwhelming topic to try and talk about in short little messages. But, Father, we just uh, come to you as a community, and I just thank you for this library of books that our tradition of faith has passed down to us. And, and I just pray, Lord, that you would fill us with a fresh hunger and awe for your word. I pray that you'd teach us how to come to them reverently with the fear of the Lord and also overwhelmed by the unfailing message of love that they tell and that they invite. Yeah, I pray that you'd guide us tonight. pray that your presence, your spirit would be here and near. Amen. I'm going to read a little excerpt from Luke 24. I read this last week when we took communion, and I felt to read it every week before I teach. So, a little context. Jesus, in Luke's account, Jesus has just been crucified, killed, and now he is making appearances. He's back on the scene. And in this one, it's on the road to Emmaus. He comes along these two young disciples who are walking along, discouraged, um, feeling kind of downcast and disheartened at what's happened because they thought Jesus was going to be this big political Messiah who was going to revolt against the Romans and lead an uprising and bring Jewish independence. And all of a sudden, he's dead. And Jesus comes alongside them and picking up in Luke 24, verse 27. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going to go further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us as he talked with us on the road? And he opened the scriptures to us. And I think in many ways, this scripture, it's one of my favorite stories. Our son is named Harvey Emmaus after this story. And I think it encapsulates kind of the beautiful complexity of what's going on when we come to the scriptures, right? Because we have this, well, Jesus' scriptures that he's talking about there in the Old Testament. So we have the text itself present in this story. And then we have the word of God made flesh, Jesus himself obviously present on the road. And then what's the thing that's making these guys' hearts burn? It's called the Holy Spirit. And we have this intricate, complex relationship happening where the usefulness of this story can only be activated when you have willing hearts with the presence of Jesus empowered by that spirit. And we're going to spend the next three weeks, well, at least you're going to spend tonight. Some of you might not come back. 
but we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about how do we handle these scriptures that have been passed down to us. Because it's, it's complex. It's not simple. Something that will become very obvious these next three weeks. I am not preaching. I'm not preaching sermons to you. I am teaching these next three weeks. And you're going to get a lot of Dave. A lot of how I have created kind of frameworks to think about this. Okay? So, that's also why we have PowerPoints and... If you want to bring notebooks and take notes, feel free. For those who are extra nerdy and want extra gold stars, on Wednesday nights we're doing a discussion group here to dive deeper and reflect deeper on some of the ideas I present. But I want to start with this question. Like any good classroom environment, what is the goal or what's your goal in following Jesus? Or say it even simpler, what's the goal of Christianity for you? And don't, don't blurt it out loud. But just take a minute, genuinely think about that. What is this all for? And if something's coming to your mind, I mean, that's a big question. But if something's coming to your mind... I'd encourage you to reflect again, how, where did you learn that? How did you come to believe that? And I would argue that your answer to this question is one of the most defining characteristics of your faith. Because it facilitates for everything. It facilitates what your goal is, what you're aiming towards facilitates for the choices you make, and it also facilitates for the natural response you have to circumstances in life as it unfolds and happens to you. So, is anyone brave? Does anyone want to shout out an answer? What came to their mind? There's not right or wrong answers. I mean, there's better and worse answers, but... Liberation. Liberation. Sanctification. Love. That God would receive his reward. Okay, there's lots of good answers. Again, I'm not saying there is just one. Some that have been common in church history to bring glory to God, to enjoy God forever, <laughs> to get to heaven. I don't think that's a very good answer, but I think that's a very real answer, to be a good person, and on and on the list goes. And, and I, I bring this up because even, even the philosophers, even people who are not followers of Jesus will talk about, in, in Greek philosophy, it's this idea of a telos, or an ultimate aim that your life is oriented towards. Or for many of us, it might feel like we have lots of telosses, we have lots of goals, and we feel pulled in many directions, and sometimes those goals contradict each other. I think this is just something that defines what it means to be human, and what you have in mind as your goal of your faith of following Jesus and of being a Christian is going to shape how you come to this book and what you think it's for, what you think it is, how it works how you use it, how you teach others to use it. 
what you have in mind at the end shapes from the very beginning how we approach it. I would argue, this is Dave's one-liner, Paul said it pretty good, that the goal of our Christian faith is to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Or said more simply, the goal of following Jesus is to, yes, be sanctified, be made mature, become the truest version of yourself as God destined and created you to be. And over the next three weeks, I'm going to present to you guys a framework for how we as humans come to believe what we do, how we change and mature, and then the role and function that the scriptures should have in that process, okay? Pretty easy. Tonight, we'll be hitting the nature of scripture. So the what. What is this book that many of us own a copy or many copies of or have on our phone? Then the second night will be the function of scripture. So how does this text operate in the life of the community? How does it do what it's supposed to do? And then third will be our engagement with this text. So it'll get a little more practical, a little more personal. What are the implications of these first two, of the what and the how, for the four? Okay? Sound nerdy enough? I want to introduce kind of three quotes here at the start that they'll circle back to as we go, and you'll hear present even in just shaping the way I'm kind of presenting everything. This first one is by Tim Mackey. If you guys haven't heard of Tim Mackey, he's the voice behind the Bible Project. So you've probably heard his voice, even if you didn't know who he was. He's also the biblical scholar and kind of theological mind behind the Bible Project. And I could not commend to you enough, go and listen to anything Tim has to say about the Bible. And not just the Bible Project, but his kind of reflections on his method and how he approaches the scriptures. Couldn't commend him enough. But he says this, we need to understand what something is before we can understand what it is for. We need to understand what something is before we can understand what it is for. And he tells this great story about uh, his kids breaking into his shed all the time. And they go and grab all his tools and they find all these creative uses for his tools that they were not intended for. Like using a, a buzz saw to dig a hole or screwdrivers to cut down a tree or things like that, and how when you don't understand what something is, you use it for all sorts of wrong things, and it probably makes it more difficult to get the job done and probably ends up damaging and breaking the tool in the process, right? Another one, this is by a famous communication theorist named Marshall McLuhan. He says, the medium is the message, and he's specifically talking about art and marketing, but what he meant by this is the way something, the form something takes as it's presented, or you could think of kind of the skin that it's wrapped in, shapes the content of the very message. So form, while it's distinct from values, form does shape values. And some forms are better or worse for actually conveying those values. The form that the scriptures have been handed down to us and how they've come to us are as important as the content of those very scriptures. And third, some of you guys have heard me say this before. This is a Hungarian chemical physicist named Michael Polanyi. And he has this great line. He says, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And what he means by that is that the individual constitutive parts, when held in isolation, 
have a certain reality to them. But the minute you combine them and create something more complex, now you don't just have those parts that you started with, you also have the relationships between those parts. And those relationships are a reality in and of themselves. And the simplest example I could give is, I could take a human being and break the body down into its atoms and molecules. And we could fill those compartmentally into buckets on a table. And then over here we could have a human being and I could make the argument to you that those are the same thing, right? It's the same amount of molecules and atoms in both situations. But obviously, that's laughable, obviously the human being, because of the way that those parts are arranged and connected and working together, there's an exponential complexity that has come about to make that human a living organism. So with the scriptures, in biblical studies, we would call this a canonical approach. It is, it is approaching the text as it's one unified story made up of many different parts. And the relationship between those parts are as important as the individual parts. Matt says it this way a lot. You have to know the whole Bible to read any of the Bible, which kind of sounds like a logical conundrum, like an oxymoron. But it's true. We have to understand the whole unified story to be able to rightly understand the individual parts as we come to them. So, what is the Bible for and what is it? Let me run through culturally some things that I think people are thinking about the Bible. I'm not isolating or picking on anyone, but first off, it is for changing our behavior, which I would say the scriptures do invite us to change our behaviors. But many would then conclude that the scriptures are nothing more than a divine rule book. Second conclusion, some of us might believe that the scriptures primarily are for telling us what to believe, which then leads to the logical conclusion that it is a theology answer book, that I can just kind of flip this thing open anywhere, anytime, and just pull out propositional truth or some theological statement about God or humanity or the world. Third, I think it's really common to think of the scriptures as being for me to hear God personally. And that tends to lead to an idea of what the scripture is as a divine love letter written to just me in the 21st century. Or, lastly, it's for showing good moral lessons, which places the scripture just amongst a list of many religious books, right? And I think this is what happens when we, obviously, all those things on the left, I would say, are good and true. I think the scriptures are intended to change how we behave and how we live. They're meant to teach us what to believe about God, ourselves, and the world. They're meant to speak to us, right? The rhema word of God, that it would come through the scripture and speak to me in my life, in my situation, in my context. And it's full of all kinds of good moral lessons. It's full of a lot of really anti-moral lessons too, of how not to live or what not to do. But I think when we work backwards from what we use it for, and we try to define what the scriptures actually are from that, we end up with something far less than what they really are. We end up with a two-dimensional version of scripture rather than a three-dimensional vibrant world that it invites us into. And we'll circle back and talk about that at the end. So I'm going to run through some basic background. And this will be a little bit of a fire hose. 
It's not like you're supposed to memorize this, but I, want, I have a point of kind of confronting us with this reality. I want us to face it. First off, the Holy Bible. Where do we get that word? Bible comes from the Latin Biblia, which means book, which is kind of a really bad name because this is not a book, right? This is a library of books, 66 books. So, say oh, this is for you. I think we should start a movement of referring to this as our Bibles, <laughs> not our Bible, right? And that matters. This is not one book. And until the last few hundred years, you could not carry it around in your pocket or in a backpack. You had to have like a wagon full of scrolls or at best a big heavy codex that you'd probably need like two people to carry and transport, right? Even the technology of having this bound into a single front and back cover as one book is very recent. Okay, 66 different books, many of which themselves talk about in the book that they were compiled from sources of more books and more oral traditions. The unified story of the text spans 60 generations over 1500 years and the two testaments that we are presented with in our modern day Bibles of the Old and New Testament have their own complex histories of how they came to be canonized and compiled. And there are at least 40 human authors, probably more, originally recorded in the ancient languages of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And there is a broad range. We're talking 1,500 years in different geographical locations of historical cultural context in which all these texts emerge. Numerous literary genres. We have wisdom literature, poetry, historical narrative, discourse, prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature. We have so many different genres from a literary standpoint. If you break it down, this is the broadest three categories you could think about. The majority of the scriptures are narrative. A third of them are poetic, which that's kind of crazy, just to stop and think about that for a sec. A third of our Bible is poetry. The medium is the message. What does that say, not only about God, but what does that communicate about us as human beings? We're at least one-third not just brains on sticks. We got beating hearts and emotions. I'm trying to confront us with the raw humanity of this library of books. It has a real human history compiled and composed over 1,500 years. And I don't know everyone's story in the room, but for some of us, the humanity of the Bible probably gives rise to this implicit tension of what it is and how we approach it. And the tension lies between divi the divinity and the humanity of this text. So let me unpack that a little bit. I think if we're honest, we could all say that we've felt this tension even in our own faith, right? We claim to believe in this ultimate truth that applies to all humanity at all times and all places and all cultures. That's like pretty big capital T truth. It's about as universal as it gets. And yet at the same time, my faith is relevant and meaningful and impactful for my messy little human life. And implied in our, in our faith is this presence of both. But let me walk out, I think, two views that can, they're, they're kind of characters, 
but I think all of us probably have felt them at times. So I'm not trying to isolate any one group of people. I think all of us feel this tension. So the first one is when we emphasize the divinity of these texts. They're 100% divine. So that, that is a view that this library of books are divine revelation flawlessly dictated from the mouth of God. Tim Mackey calls this the golden tablets view of scripture. It's this idea that they just kind of floated down from the heavens pristine and perfect, just as they are. Or, or maybe that the authors who, who wrote them went into some kind of spiritual ecstasy or trance. The Holy Spirit took over their bodies and they just dictated every word. That is the divine emphasis on the nature of Scripture. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we have the humanity of Scripture. So this is a view that this library of books is ruggedly human and communicates nothing more than a specific spiritual, psychological, and social beliefs of an ancient people called the Jews. And then a sect of Jews that formed that came to be known as Christians in the New Testament. And they may be useful for identifying some universal ideas about humanity or spirituality, but ultimately, why would they have any authority over my understanding and interpretation of reality? Why would I, as a modern person, submit to this ancient worldview that's communicated in these texts? So we have this tension and these extremes where we fully take this as a divine document, we strip it of its humanity, and then we have the other side of fully emphasizing the humanity and just assuming it's like any other book from human history. And as someone who has wrestled with these types of things, by my nature and temperament, I am overly rational to the point of crippling my own ability to engage emotions or have a faith of my own. It took me three or four years of wrestling in my early 20s before I even finally felt like God could break through into my life. And I, I think these are characters, but in real life, I see these tensions present in everyone I've talked to for the last 10 years of working in ministry. And I see these kind of biases implicit in the way we're bringing this text to bear on our life. That might be something you don't even think about. It's how this library of books came to be. But where I think it gets very relevant and starts to touch more at home for us is that there is an intimate relationship between your view of how this book was inspired and your view of how now we interpret it. Those are like two sides of the same coin. So if you have a strong emphasis on the divinity of the scripture, you're also going to have a certain way of reading it and if you have a strong emphasis on the humanity of scripture, it's going to lend to a certain type of reading. So let me unpack those a little bit. An emphasis on the divine nature of scripture often surfaces as the desire for things to be obvious, straightforward, and simple. You might hear it in a phrase like, God said it, I believe it, so let's do it. It's just obvious. So just, I read it, that's what it said, so I'm going to do it. And this can lead to a form of, of creedalism or absolutism, this form of Christianity where to be a Christian is to abide by a certain set of bullet point behaviors and bullet point beliefs. The emphasis on the human nature of scripture 
surfaces as the desire to question, wrestle with, doubt, and challenge that so-called simplicity of the text. After all, why should these people's thoughts, the authors of scripture, why should these people's thoughts or ideas be given special authority over or above my own? This is, this is us in the modern age. Why would I submit to this ancient document? For many of these people, slowly over time, their Christian faith becomes untenable, unbelievable, and slowly they become less and less certain that they can even trust the Bible, and then it starts to have less and less sway over the shape and context and contour of their very life. And ironically, this is where the polarization of these two approaches happens. Those people start to live less and less like Christians have practiced for hundreds of years. And so then the other group is even more fervent about, no, the simplicity of the text. We have to focus on the straightforward, simple approach, because if you start asking questions or start reflecting on some of the complexity of it, if you turn over those stones, it's just a slippery slope before you're not even following Jesus anymore. And so these two kind of characters end up polarizing and pushing each other apart. What are the problems with these approaches? I'm just going to read so that I stay on track with my time. The divine emphasis on scripture as being golden tablets that just floated down from heaven, the first problem is it's just not true. That's not how the scriptures came into being. It's fictitious. They did not float down from a cloud. They were compiled by over 40 authors over 1,500 years, 60 generations. And I think if we have this view of scripture as this divine golden tablet, it makes it very difficult for us to engage with those who might see things differently than us, even within the diversity of the body of Christ. It also is going to be difficult to be on mission to people who have a completely different framework or worldview than you. And more than anything, it's going to be difficult to be very loving and kind because your goal from day one of engaging and meeting that person is to get them to believe a bullet point list of behaviors and right beliefs. Because that's what you think your Christian faith is built upon. By thinking that the only authority in your life is scripture, it leaves us susceptible to blinders and we are unaware of the many other things that are shaping our beliefs. And the latter human emphasis, well, I'll just say it really plainly, is radically different than the assumptions of the people authoring this book. So if we come to this book just as any other historical document, and I mean, you're, you're free to do that. That's a legitimate view. But I can tell you this, that is a radically different worldview than those who penned these words. The opening line of the scripture is, in the beginning, God. The fundamental baseline assumption of this whole library is a human being on their knees before a creator God. And so if that's not our fundamental assumption, we're probably not going to find or become that way by reading it. If we come to this text as just any other human document, it's a radically different approach than the one practiced by Jesus or any of his followers in the New Testament and all of church history. And ironically, it destines us to create interpretations of this book that just look a lot like our modern day culture and preferences and personality. And it leaves us as the authority over scripture. And I don't know about you guys, but we all know how <laughs> fragile and, and meek we are. 
And so being left as the only source of authority in our lives is probably not the best situation. So you probably would guess, for those that know me, where I would take this. I think it is wildly, radically essential that we as mature followers of Jesus are learning to hold the humanity and the divinity of these texts together. And I love this picture. This is by an artist named M.C. Escher. And Tim Mackey in the Bible Project uses this illustration often to try and give an allegory or a visual for the divine and human inseparability of this text, this library of texts. And the reality is we live 2,000 years after the events that the scriptures record. And it is tempting and easy with that span of time to view them as if the Apostle Peter was walking around with like a Bible under his arm, bound like this. It's very easy as modern people to, with this gap of time and space, to forget we're so disassociated from the actual processes that it unfolded. In the writing of the scriptures over those 1,500 years, the community, the people of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit actually moving on the earth to bring salvation and redeem them, and the producing of these texts, they're all happening at the same time. It is, it is not linear. It, they did not float down and then just boom, appear, and now we've been living ever since. It has always been a process of the divine and the human, of God coming and incarnating on the earth. And obviously we see that embodied in the flesh at the climax of this unified story that's leading up to this prophet and this Messiah named Jesus. He embodies the divinity and the humanity. And so would it not make sense that the story that's been prophesying and testifying to his coming one day would also be intimately divine and human? God doesn't change how he works all of a sudden when Jesus comes on the scene. It's always been a process of a divine creator God coming and getting dirty with us in the earth. So we come to the scriptures as incarnation. A couple scriptures we could pull from. Two famous ones that people always talk about. These are going to emphasize the divinity of the text. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul writes, All scriptures God breathed, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And 2 Peter is not very different. Chapter 1, verse 20, Peter writes, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So the two kind of descriptors we get in the New Testament for how the Scriptures came into being are God-breathed and carried along by the Spirit. And both of those imply human partnership with them. The language of God breathed, it's the only place in the whole Bible this word occurs. And it's, it's a reference back to the garden where God first breathes into humanity and brings life. And so like humanity, the scriptures themselves have been infused and breathed and filled with God's spirit. But they are entirely human at the same time. And Peter's description, again, is beautiful, that they were carried along by the Spirit. And a couple verses that I would point you to. These are just fun Bible nerd facts. Does anyone know the first time in the Bible that the Bible talks about 
writing the Bible. Think about that. Any obvious ones come to mind? Any guesses? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a good guess. The law. Psalms are a great guess. The Ten Commandments, Exodus, Sinai, that's all, uh, the most common one we think of, right? Where Moses is up on this mountain and he's instructed to go and write these things down. But it's actually not. It's three chapters before in Exodus 17. And I love this. I love how human this is. What's going on in Exodus 17? Well, the Israelites were in captivity and bondage in Egypt, and the Lord has worked miraculously to deliver them. We have this historic occurrence of this population of slaves that now are miraculously delivered to go back to this place called the Promised Land. And they are wandering through the desert, and they have nothing. Think of the, the crisis of immigrants fleeing from war-torn countries in our modern age. Think of that, but in the ancient world. So there's no world peace, there's no NGOs bringing food and relief. It's just a group of people with nothing wandering through the desert, and they are prime for plunder. And this other people group, I think it's the Amalekites, they come in to attack Israel. And what happens? It's this crazy story. Moses goes up on a mountain and he's super old. And as long as he holds his hands above his head and prays, the Israelite army is winning the battle. And if his hands start falling, so they have to get other guys to hold his arms. It's this kind of crazy story. And they win the battle. Against all the odds, they win this battle. And then God says this, Exodus 17, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. It's like the road to Emmaus. It's just this normal thing. Like Jesus comes along and he's just talking to these guys. And this is the God of the universe, of all creation, in the flesh, resurrected. And how's he revealing the story of God to humanity? He's just walking along a dirt road with a couple of nobodies. It's so wild and it's so human. And here in Exodus, this crazy battle happened. And God says, remember, what are they supposed to remember? They're supposed to remember that God is their deliverer. And the impetus, the reason we have this library of texts is because God has been at work in human history trying to bring deliverance and salvation to real people in real places, in real nations. And if we don't embrace the full humanity and divinity of that, then what hope do we have that he is here present trying to do the same thing for us? So, I'll wrap us up. The incarnational model. That's going to be my foundation. I'm inviting us, whatever side of that spectrum is more natural to you, Again, I'm creating extreme characters, so I wouldn't expect anyone in this room to be on one extreme of that. But I would guess that for all of us, there's a tendency that we feel more comfortable leaning into. We feel much more comfortable with this just being a golden tablet that floated down from the clouds, or we feel a lot more comfortable just kind of viewing this as a text that might have some wisdom in it, but actually I'm just going to kind of do what I want at the end of the day. So I'm inviting us to try and hold both in equal tension. The Bible is first and foremost a library of books composed and compiled over 60 generations. 
to a people who were trying to follow this God who had revealed himself as creator. And along the way through this story, he becomes manifest in real history as their deliverer too. And ultimately he comes in flesh in the form of Israel's Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And like him, the Bible is thoroughly and mutually human and divine. The picture of Heschel. It's hard to tell where one starts and the other one begins. Second, this library of books tells a unified story of God's real work in human history on the earth to save a specific historical group of people called the Jews, and then ultimately through them offer that same salvation to all humanity. And we are now invited to live as a part of that story. And our confidence and trust in the scriptures to, to lead us to our telos, to lead us to our goal of our Christian faith of maturity, does not rely on rationally being able to defend or argue their authority. It comes from God. The authority of Scripture is the authority of God. And His action in history and His people who were asked to write it down and remember what He's done. And I'll contrast that at the beginning with those first models of Scripture that I think lead to such a flat reading of Scripture that where it's a rule book or a theology answer book or it's just a personal letter to me. The Scriptures do not come into our mind, they come and possess us. They invite us into a whole new way to participate in this world. And ultimately, the authority of Scripture comes from the action of the Spirit. The Spirit invites us to participate in this world, and we are being called out, not just to learn truths, but to live into this truth, to live into this story. It's, it's like a Shakespearean play where Act 5 didn't finish, and now we're left to fill in and finish the story. In closing, I'll just read this. Does it not make sense that a God whose primary message is that he is lovingly sufficient in spite of our rebellious inadequacy? Does it not make sense that he would communicate that message through the very minds and hands of people that he is in the process of saving? And just as both his power and love are sufficient for us as individuals and communities, so too must they not be sufficient for the nature and thus the authority of these texts that witness to his reality on the earth. Does not the mutuality of Scripture's human and divine nature exemplify and testify to the beauty of the message that we all cling to? And I guess the invitation is that we don't take the authority of what this story is inviting us into serious enough. In whatever model or upbringing or denomination or background of Scripture that we came to the faith in, I think we don't take it serious enough of what it's actually inviting us into, not just a worldview, but a new picture of reality and a new way to be human and a new way to live. We'll pick up the next week reflecting on how the scriptures actually function to do this, how the scriptures function in the life of the community. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.